my mouth is dry, so I'm going to take a sip of water. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. The Old Testament has a verse, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. Today we are talking about the almost biblical seven years of drought that consumed Texas from 1950 to 1957. But first, what's a great Texas dad joke? Look, I'm going to throw out a knock-knock. Who's there? Texas. Texas who? Texas are getting higher every year, man. (laughs) There you go. Now you got it. I got an uncle from Texas. Dallas, Texas. Uh, well, Marx Brothers aside, uh, I've got a good one. Um, it's actually not a good one. What is the Texas state slogan? I don't know, Sean. What is the Texas state slogan? Oil's well that ends well. Mm, yes, yes. the best. Honey. Um, yeah, most of the, I guess, dad jokes I could think of about Texas that came to mind immediately were all some form of Aggie joke or variation thereof. So on principle of not wanting to offend anyone, um, I'll just say the one that always comes up is if you don't like the weather in Texas, just wait a few minutes or some variation thereof. There it is. Boom. Most fans of history or cinema are well aware of the devastating effects of the widespread drought that caused the dust bowl of the 1930s. That ecological disaster was brought about by drought and poor soil conservation farming practices and affected the entire Great Plains region from Nebraska down into the northern counties of the Texas Panhandle. Anyone who's read or seen The Grapes of Wrath would recognize the conditions if they saw Stearman or Stratton, Texas in 1935. However, just 20 years later, a similar drought would prove even more devastating to the entire state of Texas. Droughts are a prolonged period with shortages of water in a region. These are common occurrences given the geography and the weather history of the Lone Star State. For a state that depends so heavily on agriculture, especially in the arid and the semi-arid regions of the state west of the Balcones Fault Line, which is the—now this is the line that divides the state southwest by north-northeast on an axis. And in these areas, water is beyond critical. Farms and ranches can't run without well water or river water. The Edwards Aquifer is a vast underground water source that encompasses most of central and west Texas. And then the Ogallala Aquifer extends from South Dakota down to the Panhandle. In addition, there's the mighty rivers that run southeast across the state, and they all depend on regular and steady rainfall to replenish the water supply that powers agriculture. When a drought comes, it can be devastating to all who depend on the land. Famed Texas historian Walter Prescott Webb wrote about drought. A drought never produces a panic. It comes on too insidiously and slowly. The disaster is never sudden, but drawn out over days, weeks, and months. The suffering is no less terrible because it is fraught with the persistent hope of rain. One can flee from a flood or a storm, but one does not flee from a drought. In too many cases, by the time hope is lost, the means of fleeing have departed. 
Perhaps the most terrible thing about a drought is that there is often little obvious cause for a drought to occur or to persist, and little anybody can do to end it. Those who suffer through them are often left with only the choice to endure. But why is Texas so susceptible to drought? Todd Votler, he's an executive manager of science, intergovernmental relations, and policy at the Guadalupe Blanco River Authority, says, quote, Texas experiences so many droughts in part because of its location along 30 degrees north latitude, a climate transition zone called the Great American Desert. This is the latitude where many of Earth's deserts are found, including the Sahara. Now until the late 1800s, the High Plains, which included most of West and Central Texas, were considered desert. And it wasn't until the increased agricultural capabilities and the needs of the Industrial Revolution came about that this land was tapped to become America's breadbasket. Technology and innovation can only do so much, though, in conquering Mother Nature, and the weather is just one thing that will not be controlled. The drought that changed Texas forever occurred from 1950 to 1957. This is when severely deficient rainfall plunged the entire state into an agonizing water shortage. Crops died, creeks turned to sand, farmers left their farms, cattle suffered, and many reservoirs and wells dried up. By the time the rains came, it was too late. Texas was irrevocably changed. According to some sources, rainfall amounts began declining in central Texas as early as 1947. By 1949, the rain just stopped. During this time period, Texans experienced the second, third, and eighth driest single years ever in the state, 1956, 1954, and 1951. As one West Texas farmer said, quote, The Lord is a pretty good feller, but he don't know a damn thing about farming. Another grim joke floating around was of a newcomer to West Texas who said, quote, This would be fine country if it only had water. A grizzled farmer packing up his things to leave his bankrupt land replied, So would hell. In his historical novel, The Time It Never Rained, Elmer Kelton wrote, It crept up out of Mexico, touching first along the brackish Pecos and spreading then in all directions, a cancerous blight burning a scar upon the land. Just another dry spell, men said at first. Ranchers watched water holes recede to brown puddles of mud that their livestock would not touch. They watched the rank weeds shrivel as the west wind relentlessly sought them out and smothered them with its hot breath. They watched the grass slowly lose its green, then curl and fire up like dying cornstalks. Farmers watched their cotton make an early bloom in its stunted top, produce a few half-hearted bowls, and then wither. Men grumbled, but you learned to live with the dry spells if you stayed in West Texas. There were more dry spells than wet ones. No one expected another drought like that of 33, and the really big dries like 1918 came once in a lifetime. Why worry, they said. It would rain this fall. It always had. But it didn't, and many a boy would become a man before the land was green again. Texas ranchers attempted to evade the effects of the drought by moving their cattle north to Kansas, but the drought spread there to both Kansas and Oklahoma by 1953. At that point, 75% of Texas recorded below-normal rainfall amounts, and over half the state was more than 30 inches below normal rainfall. By 1954, the drought had affected a 10-state area reaching from the Midwest to the Great Plains and southward into New Mexico and the Deep South, where several states experienced their driest calendar year since reliable records began. There are stories of horror that have passed down over the seven hellish years without rain in Texas. 
as in the Dust Bowl times, towns had to suffer through fearsome dust storms that turned noonday into night, which were so powerful that the grit abraded the paint off of license plates on cars unfortunate enough to drive through them. Thousands of cattle died, many to wild animals seeking any nutrition at all. Lake Dallas lost 11% of its capacity, a remarkable figure for such a huge body of water. Comal Springs stopped flowing out of the Edwards Aquifer for the first and only time in recorded history. Obviously, rural Texas communities were hit the hardest. Between 1950 and 1960, the number of Texas farms and ranches shrank from 345,000 to 247,000, and the state's rural population declined from more than a third of the population to a quarter. Ranchers and farmers were hit the hardest by the dual threat of water scarcity and the increasing price of feed, which was itself caused by the drought, reducing production, a vicious, cycle, a vicious cyclical impact. The combined income of Texas farmers fell by one-fifth from the previous year, and the price of low-grade beef cattle dropped from 15 to 5 cents a pound. Eventually, the U.S. government stepped in, delivering emergency feed supplies to these cantankerously independent ranchers on a scale that even surpassed the federal intervention of the New Deal period. In 1940, 29% of employed Texans were in rural agricultural jobs. In 1960, it was just 12%, and has continued to decline ever since. The financial outcome of the economic losses from 1950 to 1957 were estimated to be $22 billion in 2011 dollars. Towns suffered from the drought as well, though it was different from the struggles of farmers. Across Texas, at least 1,000 communities enforced some type of water restriction. Some towns went completely dry and had to transport water in by truck or rail. The city of Dallas's reservoirs ran so low that water had to be pumped in from the Red River, whose high salt content caused further trouble by damaging water pipes and plants. In 1952, the Cotton Bowl, the stadium at the Fair Park in Dallas, drilled its own water well within the stadium to water its turf because Dallas could not furnish the water. People reported siphoning off bathwater to keep the trees in their yards alive. Even towns and cities in eastern Texas where water was more plentiful were affected in some ways, whether it was the overcrowding of displaced country folk, or even as simple as the shared heartache with their rural relatives farther west. West Texas was hit especially hard by the drought, particularly the city of San Angelo, where President Dwight D. Eisenhower visited in 1957 to assess the effects of the drought just before it ended. Shortly after the president's visit, rain finally came. Intermittent January rains gave way to downpours in February, which continued through the spring and summer seasons. April 24, 1957, saw a storm bring 10 inches of rain to a large portion of Texas within a few hours, accompanied by destructive hail and tornadoes. 32 days of rain and floods killed 22 people and evacuated thousands more. With rivers well over their banks, Texas was again in crisis. Federal disaster agencies were called in, and all told, the floods did over $120 million in damage across the state, which was already reeling from seven years of drought. In the hope of preventing, or at the very least mitigating, such a crisis in the future, the state developed drought contingency plans, expanded the state's water storage, and sought new sources of groundwater. The state created the Texas Water Development Board in 1957, which set into motion a number of water conservation plans. An amendment to the Texas Constitution in 1957 
authorized the issuance of $200 million in loans to municipalities for conservation and development of water resources. The number of Texas reservoirs more than doubled by 1970, and by 1980, more than 126 major reservoirs had been constructed. State and federal departments of agriculture set up safeguard programs to help farmers handle future severe droughts, including low-interest emergency loans and emergency access to hay and grazing land. The state began a number of efforts to increase the water supply, building dams, forming lakes, and tapping into underground sources of water. From 1947 to 1957, groundwater use increased five-fold in Texas. As the drought spurred farmers to find more water sources, cheaper pumps were made available. From 57 to 1970, workers built 69 dams, including the Longhorn Dam on the Colorado River, which formed Ladybird Lake in 1960. Within just a few years, one could fly over the state and see reservoirs dotting the land, from giant lakes around cities to small tanks outside of towns and on farms and ranches. Today, Texas, with only one natural lake in the entire state, has more surface area of water than any state except for, of course, Minnesota. They're the Lakers. The 1950s drought continues to remain a model for water conservation plans in the present day, with Texas water authorities using the effects of the drought severity to create water plans. Seven years without rain. I mean, it is, is, it's biblical, is the only way I can unimaginable. <laughs> unimaginable. So uh, the reason that this story had come up was in... I remembered a story from uh, my mom talking about her childhood. So <clears throat> she was three when this began, and then she was 10 when it ended. So if you really think about it, for pretty much until she was 10, drought is all that she knew. And they were in South Texas, they were in West Texas, but they were still very much affected by this drought. Um, they were in a dairy farm, and they were saved by a couple of things. Probably the first thing was that their well actually didn't go dry. But, you know, she would say, you know, you turn the house water off and then you, the cows drank all the water the rest of the day. And you need a lot of water to run dairy production. So the dairy really kind of kept them going. But you ran out of things to feed the cattle. So um, she would tell stories if they had these uh, burners that they would come out and they would burn all the prickly pear, which was everywhere, far as you could see. And the... the this is a cactus, by the way, for those yeah. who don't know. Yeah, so they, they would burn the cactus and roast the needles off, and then the cattle will eat them. So I found stories about this um, these pear burners. People would use them. They would burn off the needles. You could feed them to the cattle. You could feed them to sheep. But what was interesting was you had to be very careful because once they got a taste for it, cattle and sheep would just eat it with the needles on there, and it would kill sheep. And for cows, they'd get infections, and they would get these things called screw worms, which then reminded my mother of a story of when that they came and they sprayed for screw worms. They brought these um, irradiated screw worms that were infertile, and so then planes flew over and dumped thousands of screw worms all over the place to try to reduce the population of screw worms because they were infecting cattle who were having trouble because they didn't have enough water and they're getting mouth infections and getting sick. It was an awesome time to live. That's the, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the last, I guess probably in the last one of the tragic type of stories she told us that at the end of this, she can remember when she was 10 and the rains came, there were these sort of small pond lakes nearby and a local farmer taking his three boys down there to go swimming. And, 
there was a massive flash flood and one of them got washed away and drowned. And she's like, I can still remember going to that little boy's funeral. So you just like, it was a hard time in Texas, Mm -hmm. but it was an important time. And something that I think for people who are from a rural background of a certain age, you know, they, they're all the stories point to that. You might meet somebody in town who's a, a trade tradesman, you know, maybe they're a house painter or they, they run this kind of shop or they do this. And you can say, well, you talk to them and you realize, oh, oh, they, they were a rancher for a long time and then they lost everything. And then they just, they could, they had to give up. They, they fed the cattle everything they could because you can't imagine how long seven years is. Seven yeah. years of just scraping by. Well, and then a lot of the, the ranchers, especially in North and West Texas, they'd, a lot of those ranchers had resisted oil. They they had not wanted oil. They thought that they was gonna, you know, ruin their their cattle. And there's all those trucks and all those, all those rigs and all that messy, smelly, you know, stuff. The gas and everything. And they didn't want it messing with their cattle being raised. After the 1950s, a lot of those ranchers diversified, and they they still ran cattle in their ranches, but they also sunk oil wells and. And, uh, and they, you know, and they got into business and they invested money into technology and things like that, because, you know, if they survived that drought, you know, they were never going to be relying on just one thing to keep them going, especially the really large landowners, like, like the Wagners and the Kings and things like that. They were not going to rely on just one thing to keep them going. They were going to, they were going to diversify and have a lot of different options, uh, to, to continue to exist. Uh, you, you can go to the Handbook of Texas or, or Wikipedia and look at a lot of these really small towns. And so many of these towns uh, that are practically ghost towns now, you can look at a kind of projection of, of their growth. And, you know, they may have had a lot of hard time during the Depression, but, you know, during the war, maybe they, they, they increased in size or they stabilized from, you know, from the 1930s. Then in 1950, you know, their their numbers started to drop. And so, like, I, I saw one town that had, you know, 1950 had 20, or 1947, 48 had 2,400 people. Uh, now they have 12. Uh, and, and the drop-off was significant between 1950 and 1960. You know, they lost, you know, t- they lost 1,200 people in, in that first decade and then more in the 70s, more, more in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, there's maybe 12, 15 people left in the in the community. So that's that's a story that repeats itself over and over uh to me the the shocking thing is the effect on cities like dallas and even like houston uh you know having you know having you know your water you know get brackish because you're getting river water from the red river you know because of the salt content or yeah (laughs) well there's a lot of articles so because we just sort of went through a a fairly prolonged drought a few years ago there's a number of articles that were sort of written reflecting on this time and and really this was what you know what drove what what drove and what drives water conservation in texas was this event yeah out of this came like a whole like a lot of agencies a lot of innovations a lot of focus on that and that's this is why you can go water skiing in texas and this is why you can have a great time on the lake on the weekend with your buddies is thanks to the fact that these people survived the drought and those while they look like fun pools of water to play in and swim um, it really is the lifeblood of Texas cities and agriculture. And as Texas continues to expand, Texas will continue to face water crisis uh, as we make sure that we're able to keep, you know, got to keep the water flowing. But um, 
Yeah, it's a crazy story. Crazy story. Like, you know, and, and the firsthand stories, the, the quotes, there's so many great little pieces out there about this time. You know, when, when they said, my grandmother bought me this this adorable raincoat. And by the time it rained, I, I hadn't been able to wear it for four years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, good. Yeah, or the people that say, I didn't even know what a puddle looked like. Yeah. Like, imagine not knowing what a puddle looks like. Well, West Texas is dry enough. And then you just imagine yeah. really... <laughs> Yeah, so that's interesting also because so so like my my dad's family, you know, that my dad was born in 1949 in West Texas in in Monahans in Wink area. Uh you know, they, it was always drought because it's the desert. Uh, but you know, they weren't affected by this because they had oil. They they were able to, you know, so there was there was the oil that was keeping people busy and a lot of people that's what a lot of people did. A lot of those roughnecks had been ranch hands before, you know, and they were like, "Well, I'm done with this. There's no work. So, I'm going to go yeah. get a job." I don't know. Well, I don't need any skill. I just need to be able to turn a wrench, you know? So, you know, that, and a lot of people just moved to the cities. They just said, I'm done. I'm done with this, done with this land. This, you know, this land isn't, is, you know, I've been through, I I went through the 1918 drought. I went through the 33 drought. Yeah. This is it. I'm done. I'm moving to the city and I'm done. And so that's what happened a lot is that a lot of people just packed up and left and they, they moved on. Well, the other thing too, is that we don't, didn't even talk about is the economic impact of, you know, when you look at a plot of land or a certain amount of acreage, there are ratings based on the density of the foliage, the kind of plants that are there, how much food there is, as to what density of livestock and cattle. So it kind of breaks down to how many head of cattle you can run per acre. And for, especially for West Texas, that density has fallen way off the map. If you look at after those massive droughts because the land became so dry, the vegetation dried up, but the topsoil was damaged. So when it came back, it never came back quite as strong. And having those massive droughts one after the other without having the ability for the land to really heal um, really affects the ability to run and, and deal with livestock on that level. So the land is just not as productive as it, as it was you know, 150 years ago. It's just not the same. So, yeah. So this was just a crazy story that I think a lot of people just miss because we always talk about the grapes of wrath and the Great Depression, but nobody talks about, you know, the 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 terrible 30s, but in Texas they knew them as the filthy 50s. Or the drought, the R O U T H. That's that's it's just the common word of <laughs> drought. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the dust bowl did affect Texas, but yeah, but again, this this was seven straight years of just devastation throughout the state, and then followed by a month of rain, <laughs> thirty days of rain. Uh, that it is biblical in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if you know anybody from Texas, from West Texas or South Texas, who was born in the mid forties, uh, mid to late forties, you should ask them about their childhood and if they remember the, the terrible seven years of drought. And if you have stories to share, why not send them? Send it. And if you have stories to share, drop us a line. We'd love to hear. Um, my mouth is dry, so I'm going to take a sip of water. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Um, I mean, I've seen what my backyard looks like after, um, you know, a few weeks without rain. So I can't imagine, you know, most of Texas in that same state. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. 
We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you love this show, we'll get out there and tell your friends. Tell them to listen, help them to subscribe, and go leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash Podcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.